Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, where we can discuss current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China through our free email newsletter or our excellent revamped smartphone app. If you want to support what SubChina and Seneca are doing, please make sure to subscribe to our premium access channel. It's great value, and Jeremy and his team do an outstanding job. Uh, check out our explainer posts and videos on topics like Made in China 2025, the very controversial plan which is you know, kind of at the heart of all the trade tensions between the U.S. and China these days. Uh, also, check out our growing stable of podcasts in the Seneca Network. We are proud to welcome New Voices, or New Voices, a bi-weekly podcast on issues related to women. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from, I kid you not, Fiji is Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SubChina, who's taking a well-earned holiday on that storied South Pacific paradise. Jeremy, filled as I am with envy, I nonetheless ask you to describe for me your doubtlessly idyllic surroundings, uh, and then greet the good listeners, won't you? Okay, I'll greet the listeners first. I'm not really able to describe the surroundings too well. Uh, we arrived yesterday, and I'm uh, okay. rather jet-lagged, but it does appear to be very lovely. There are palm trees, coconut palms, as promised, and blue sea. Uh, and maidens with flowers offering you uh, cocktails. So, um, <laughs> so far, it's as per advertisement. <laughs> uh. Also, lots of Chinese signs. So I'm going to go downtown and see what's going on uh, and try and find some decent Chinese food this evening. Oh, yeah. I mean, that should be really interesting. Um, you'll have to write something for the, for the site about it. Uh, well, today we are delighted to welcome back Paul French, who joins us from New York. Paul is the uh, author most recently of an outstanding new book called City of Devils. Uh, last time we spoke to Paul is back in 2012, if I'm not mistaken, after his wonderful book, Midnight in Peking. Uh, we'll make sure that there's a link to that podcast on our show notes page. This time we shift from Beijing, or Beiping as it was then, uh, to Shanghai, the fabled Paris of the Orient, during its final years as the realities of the war with Japan finally closed the curtains on a fascinating period. Uh, it's a period that's been celebrated and romanticized for its cosmopolitanism, uh, but also reviled for its decadence, and, and it's been seen as the very embodiment of, of colonial exploitation. Uh, and as this marvelous book colorfully describes it, the place it was indeed quite the morass of debauchery and sin. Uh, as Obi-Wan told young Master Skywalker as they approached the Moss Eisley spaceport, Never has there been a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> Paul French, welcome back to Seneca. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a fantastic description. I, I, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Save it for your next book. And uh, very much your expert area, I guess, Paul. Um, so your book focuses on two figures who loomed large in the underworld, an escaped convict from Oklahoma who makes his way to Shanghai and becomes the king of slot machines, and a natalie attired dancer, 
oozing with old world charm who rises through the entertainment world even as Shanghai is collapsing around him. They ally, they feud, they reunite, and eventually one completely betrays the other. Tell us about these two characters at the heart of your novel, Paul, whose names are Jack Riley and Joe Farron. Though, like so many in the Shanghai at that time, these guys were reinventions of earlier selves, and neither of them were born with these names. No, they weren't. And I should point out um, that, that they're real. It, it's not a novel. It's, uh, it's a literary nonfiction, if you like. These people absolutely did exist, and, and everything that happened to them really did happen to them. But um, I was looking for two characters that reflected that late 1930s, early 1940s Shanghai, which for various reasons in terms of uh, criminals was just after the big Chinese gangsters. They had, because of the Japanese attack on Shanghai in 1937, left the city. So everything just fell into the lap of uh, foreigners that were there. And these two guys had met each other and they wanted to create the biggest casino and nightclub in uh, Asia. And they did. But both of them came from somewhere else. Joe Farron was born Josef Polak in uh, the Jewish ghetto in Vienna, and he was, a, he was an exhibition dancer who came on tour and met a woman called Nelly, who was a white Russian uh, refugee, and um, they changed their name to Joe and Nelly Farron and did a kind of Fred and Ginger Rogers act in Shanghai and started crafting these incredible uh, nightclub chorus lines and running nightclubs and bringing over amazing kind of African-American jazz bands to, to, to the French concession, to, to the big nightclubs and so on. And, and he was doing very well with that. Jack Riley is, is uh, you know, an interesting character in that he was born John Becker. He was an orphan from Tulsa. He uh, went in the Navy in the First World War and went on what was called the Yangtze Patrol, the Yangpat, which uh, was the American warships that went up and down the Yangtze from, from Shanghai, protecting Americans and American interests in China. After that, he ended up back in Tulsa, getting involved in a kind of heist of a speakeasy and a card game and a kidnapping. And he got 34 years in Oklahoma State Penitentiary. But he escaped. He was on the baseball team and he literally just, uh, when they went out to play a game in the nearby town, he just he just sort of ran away. Managed to get to San Francisco, burnt his fingerprints off with acid, <laughs> took the name Jack Riley and went to Shanghai. And the thing about Shanghai that's really crucial is, you know, Casablanca is a Hollywood invention, but Shanghai was the one place in the world where you didn't need a passport, you didn't need a visa, you just walked off the boat, gave them a name, told anyone you wanted your invented backstory, and just began your new life. Were there such a place today? Not yeah. too different from uh, the way uh, Shanghai was when you arrived, Paul. <laughs> and look, look what happened to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, <laughs> born uh, in the Jewish ghetto of Vienna, he rose up to become yeah. a writer of noir nonfiction, right? Well, well, I think that, you know, uh, uh, Sh Shanghai definitely does have that thing where people create their backstory, you know, where, where, where people can be their own. I mean, there's so many of those. I, I have seen so many of those stories. I mean, I can tell you that I remember, you know, very clearly clearly, when the head of the Oxford and Cambridge Association, obviously the universities in Shanghai, turned out to have gone to not only neither of those institutions, but to have barely completed basic schooling, <laughs> but still run the thing for years. There are lots of those characters <laughs> still running around in Beijing. I, I'm sure of that too. Um, you know, 
when when most people think of the underworld in Shanghai of the 30s, uh, they think probably of people like Big Ears Du, Du Yesheng, and Two Guns Cohen. Uh, I, I got to confess, Paul, when I first saw the title of the book, especially the line, The Two Men Who Ruled the Underworld of Old Shanghai, I, I figured that you were, you'd written a book about Du and Cohen. Um, maybe you could quickly say who these two were and explain. Uh, you, you said, you know, a lot of people skedaddled once 37 happened, the Battle of Shanghai and the Japanese invasion. Uh but maybe you, you could talk about who these two were and explain why they only sort of figure in the background of the book and why you decided that, that Jack Riley and Joe Farron really sort of deserve to be at the center. Well, th- there had always been foreign gangs. I mean, um, American, British, Mexican, they had a massive gang that made a lot of money uh, smuggling uh, tequila into America during Prohibition through uh, Shanghai, <laughs> wow. for instance. Uh, the Portuguese had a lot of gangs that later on became very important, you know, shipping things through Macau when when Portugal was neutral in the Second World War. So there'd always been foreign gangs, but they'd never been as powerful, not even close to, to the power of particularly, you know, Big Ear Du, Du Yue Shung and the Green Gang or pockmarked Huang and uh, yeah. Huang Jingrong and the Red Gang. Um, and they, uh, which always, you know, Huang Jingrong was always interesting as well because as well as leading the second biggest gang in the city, he was also the head of the detective division of the French police. Very convenient. Know, sort of yeah. quite a handy <laughs> thing. In the way that Du Yue Shung ran the biggest gang in China but was also the head of the uh, opium suppression board. So he was both the biggest smuggler of opium and also supposedly trying to uh, crack down on it. <laughs> but um, what happened was, of course, when the Japanese attacked Chinese uh, Shanghai, uh, Baoshan, uh, Jabei, and that area, um, just outside the international settlement in August 1937, they did not, They although they conquered that and, of course, rolled on by September 1937, we have the horrific rape of Nanjing and so on, and Chiang Kai-shek has moved the government to Chongqing. They didn't invade the settlement and French town because that would have meant to go to war with America, Britain, France, and, and Japan didn't want to do that in 1937. Right. But Du Yue-shung particularly left Shanghai and went to uh, Chongqing uh, for a while and then eventually ended up in um, Hong Kong. Um, and actually, uh, uh, Morris Tugung Cohen, who had been Sun Yat-sen's bodyguard, but was also a bit of a trickster involved in all sorts of things, uh, and, and particularly running guns to, to the northern warlords up in Beijing and so on, um, he also skipped uh, uh, down to Hong Kong. And the two of them, you know, uh, funnily enough, Du Yue Shung ended up in Hong Kong, I mean, almost blind and an opium addict, but he ended up living on a UK government pension, which is more than I am. <laughs> and he... Um, because he did a deal with the British authorities in Hong Kong that he would stay out of crime and they would give him a pension. Um, Cohen that w- was down there, Tugun Cohen was down there on a nationalist government pension that was, of course, arranged for him by Madam, uh, Ma- Madam Sun Yat-sen. Um, and uh, she arranged that for him. And they used to play, uh, g- they were both gamblers and they gambled on Mahjong all day down in Kennedy Town in um, Hong Kong. So, so they were gone. And so the rackets, as they say here in America, the rackets kind of fell into the lap of these foreign gangs and gangsters. And the ability to operate these giant casinos, to be involved in the narcotics trade, um, to to, to be able to be involved in bordellos, brothels, uh, fake lotteries, everything became the preserve of um, the foreigners. And most of the old green gang Gangsters, if you like, the thugs that had worked for Du Yue-shung were hired on by Wang Jingwei, uh, China's collaborationist uh, puppet leader. And they went to work for him. Also around the same area of Shanghai as all of these foreign gang- gangsters were setting up things in the, west, in the west of the city. So that's sort of how come 
between August 1937 and December 1941, Pearl Harbor, the city's major criminals are foreign. Fascinating, fascinating. Paul, um, <clears throat> there's, I, you know, reading the book, if I didn't know that it wasn't fiction, I, I would assume it was a, a noir detective novel. It, it has a, a very strong noir feeling. Are there particular authors that may have inspired you? Um, and, you know, was there a conscious decision to write in a certain style? Well, I think uh, when you pick a subject, when I picked Midnight in Peking, I felt very much that it was about an unsolved murder and it needed to be in a sort of procedural crime novel style because that suited the even though it was a true story that suited the style and when i think of shanghai and i think of shanghai a lot of course having lived there for a long time and studied and worked there i i think of it as the ultimate noir city mm. of course i love the work of people like james elroy who writes about los angeles mostly but you know los angeles as a noir city is kind of an invention of emigre Jewish German expressionist film directors, right? So you watch all those noir films and it's always raining. And then of course you go to, you go to Los Angeles and it's never raining, right? Um, so, so that's a creation of a noir city. But I think if you look at, at what I would think of as a noir city, completely urban, densely populated, everybody pretty alienated, uh, corrupt police, corrupt administration, criminals all over the place, but also modern, you know, neon lights, art elevators, deco, right. jazz, Buicks, Art Deco. This is Shanghai, fourth biggest city in the world in the mid-1930s after London, Paris and New York, about the same size as Berlin at that point, but by far the most densely populated and the most modern city in Asia and one of the most modern cities in the world. You know, if you want central heating in your hotel room, if you want telephones, you know, uh, American cars, as I say, African-American jazz bands, incredibly cosmopolitan it, and, and neon lights everywhere. And of course, really rain slicked streets, if you want them. It is the ultimate noir city. So therefore, to write it in a noir style just seemed a natural, you know, it was kind of, uh, it, it just follows that you should write about Shanghai. Paul, let's give people a sense of the language, perhaps. Um, can you read chapter five for us? I, I love that. It's it's really short. It stands alone quite nicely. And I don't think it'll require much setup, but maybe before you start reading, you can set the stage for us. What is Jack Riley about to do? Well, I think it's okay. I mean, Jack Riley has arrived in Shanghai. He's done very well. He's uh, cheated, cheated at dice, basically, to get himself a bar called the Manhattan Bar which was on the infamous uh, Blood Alley, which was the sailor and soldier drinking street in the French concession. And he looked around Shanghai and he thought, these guys don't have slot machines, right? Because most of the administration of Shanghai, although it was international, was in the hands of the British and the British hadn't really caught on to slot machines. So there were no laws against slot machines. So he starts bringing them in. And as you know, if you go in any casino today in Las Vegas or uh, uh, Macau, Slot machines, you know, there's just lines of idiots queuing up to put their money in slot machines and lose it. It's it's just... Jer Jeremy and I were in uh, Arizona a couple of winters ago and uh, we stayed at a casino where... I actually won a bunch of money playing slots. <laughs> Jeremy, remember that? Thing? It's true. You did. Yeah, well, it's yeah. Funny. it was the first place I've been to in America where they allow smoking indoors. I was uh, he truly was shopping. <laughs> Oh, well, I can absolutely guarantee you that um, in any of these uh, bars that had Jack Riley slot machines, you would definitely have been allowed to smoke, but you um, <laughs> yeah, you would never have uh, come out with a full pocket. He rigged right, all the machines right, to right, high right. heaven anyway, so no one did. 
Anyway, let, let me give it a go. And I, I apologize. I know you suggested I should try and do it in a James Cagney accent, which is sure. going to be a, a little bit beyond me. But um, <laughs> hopefully you'll get the kind of feel for it. Jack Riley's got a shipment coming. The bill of lading says rattan furniture or maybe ebony picture frames or the workings for clocks. Inside it's slot machinery. One-armed bandits, ready to be assembled. Jack's old Manila contacts had come through, shipping direct courtesy of US Navy transports in exchange for cash wired via Joe and with the supply sergeants bought off at both ends. Jack and Mickey park up on East Broadway by the gates of the Shanghai Hongqiu Wharf in a borrowed flatbed truck. It's early October, 1933, and there's already a chill in the air. They sign the paperwork, slipping the customs squares a few bills. Mickey has rousted some ex-Marines who never made it home and opted to keep on enjoying the Shanghai good life to act as trusted stevedores for a few bucks apiece. They load the crates onto the flatbed. Shanghai is getting slottified, courtesy of Jack T. Riley. Every settlement bar, French town boite, and Hongqiu honky-tonk joint wants one. 15 Chinese bucks for the rental per week and the lion's share of the take for Jack, with enough kickback to the venue to make it a worthwhile investment. The Chinese love the new dime-eating tigers too, and every Chinese palais de danse wants them. Back of the Manhattan, the men crowbar open the crates and Jack puts all that Navy mechanical training to work assembling the things. Riley is the self-declared exclusive supplier of slot machines in Shanghai. From the northern external roads up by the settlement's border with Chinese Paoshan, across to the western roads and out to semi-rural Hangzhou. Yangtzepu, that's Waipu to the cops and Shanghai landers, to the far east of the settlement's borders down to Frenchtown. From the back alley juke joints to the uptown parlours and gentlemen's clubs. If anyone thinks they're going to take a slot from some other Aravist get-rich-quick driftwood bum who thinks it might be a good idea to start importing, there'll be trouble. Jack owns and controls every slot machine in a city famously hooked on gambling. The Navy transports keep on coming, and by Christmas 1933, the settlement is swimming in slot machines. The Shanghai Municipal Police didn't even notice them coming in. They'd never seen them in Shanghai before, didn't know what they were. Slots are the new big thing, and though the missionaries and the Shanghai Women's Purity League don't like them, Shanghai's got no laws against them. Jack's got a new nickname, courtesy of the North China Daily News, the Slots King of Shanghai. Jesus, he even puts his name on the tokens, immortalized in brass, stamped E-T-R, which every leatherneck, squaddy, driftwood and civilian knows stands for Edward Thomas Jack Riley. Five cents, 10 cents, 20 cents, a dollar good fours, redeemable all over town. Jack Riley has effectively created a new alternative currency in Shanghai. Business is good. And soon Jack needs more muscle than just Mickey to collect the coin. Those same ex-Marines gone AWOL come in handy. They're big lugs who don't think too much and have a lot to lose. In other words, folks who can't call the cops. Most have past careers as standover men, robbing small-time Chinese and Russian drug dealers and boosting illegal back-alley casinos. Jack figures they're just the sort who'd rob him, so he puts them on the payroll instead and charms them with his old Yang Pat patter and Tulsa vowels. What they lack in polish, they make up for in intimidation, warning off anyone thinking of grabbing Jack Riley's take for themselves. Jack pays them, liquors them up at his bamboo hut, lets them take their pick of the Manhattan bar's girls and makes sure they get suited, booted and shaved. Even forms them up on weekends as a baseball team. 
Jack's town team of ex-marines and nightlife types wins the city's league and also funds an orphanage for abandoned baby girls out in Hangzhou on the slots money. The men are all loyal to Jack. Soon they're known all over town as the Friends of Riley. Think twice before you cross them. Start brawling in one of Jack's joints or question the honesty of his slot machines too loudly or the Friends of Riley may acquaint your head with the filthy flagstones of Blood Alley. Brilliant, Paul. That's brilliant. I've got to ask you now, when is the movie or the HBO miniseries coming out? I mean, the thing is basically ready to shoot. The script's already practically written. You got, you know, <laughs> you uh, yeah, got your requisite uh, yeah. anti-heroes, you know, you got your cops and robbers plot line. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know, you'd barely have to cast any Asians in it, too. The speaking roles would be just like Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. um, no, there's plenty of Asian characters in there and um, it's very expandable. When I when I gave in the first uh draft of this book it was a russian novel it was uh, four times as long oh my god because because you know you start going through the newspapers every day in shanghai for 1938 1940 1941 up until pearl harbor i mean there's a crime wave on in the city chinese and foreign um there are there are people flooding into the city from outside to escape the japanese invasion so the, the, there is so much going on in the city that um, it's expandable. And it's, again, it's such a cosmopolitan city. If you just take the Chinese, although the Green Gang are gone, not only are those guys now working as thugs for Wang Jingwei, which is effectively just another criminal operation in the city as an extortionist in order to fund his puppet government, but you've got triads from the Hong Kong border, what's now Shenzhen, what was then called Shumchun Triads, coming up and getting a license from the occupying Japanese to sell drugs wow. up there. You've got uh, Koreans coming down from, of course, uh, Japanese-occupied Korea to sell drugs. You've got people coming across from the Philippines. You've got, as I say, all the different communities that were already living there. And, of course, there's a... I mean, the conundrum of Shanghai is that, although, of course, it's a colonial possession extracted by unequal treaty after the first opium war it also becomes a place of safety for people not just for the chinese who since its creation have escaped there from the taiping from famine disease you know flood disaster and warlords but also of course for what 100 200,000 white russians who fled the bolshevik revolution mm. and now are stateless and have no passports and by the time i'm writing about 40,000 European Jews who, because of that no passport, no visa thing, have actually found Shanghai to be a sanctuary. So there's, there's a great conundrum about Shanghai in that, you know, it is the creation of imperialism, yet it becomes a sanctuary and, and a place of refuge for so many people. Paul, you know, foreigners uh, in China and outside tend to be fascinated with this era of Shanghai and the sort of noir glamour of, of the times that you write about. But I wonder, do you think Chinese people um, find the same sort of uh, nostalgic glamour in this era? Or is this just something that uh, affects Lao Wai? Um, I think, um, I mean, I think, you know, the nostalgia is not about the endemic poverty that many of the 4 million people in Shanghai at that time are living in or, or, the, or the crime or the violence. The nostalgia, I think, if I do indulge in nostalgia and, and if modern Shanghai indulges in nostalgia, is in the aesthetic. It's in the look. It's in that high pie uh, mix of, right. of styles, you know, whether it be Chong Sam's or Calendar Girls or, or, or Chinese-inspired Art Deco architecture or the great, you know, literature that's being produced in Shanghai. And again, this notion of Shanghai as 
although, of course, extracted by unequal treaty, as a place where uh, culture can flourish. It's where the Shanghai film studios are. It's where the left-wing Writers' League is. You know, it's where Lu Xun is working. Mu Ying is working. You know, Ma- Mao Dun is working. It- it's where they're working with a certain level of freedom. You know, it's where Zhao Xinmei and Emily Han are able to set up bilingual uh, cultural magazines. So, so this and it's where artists are living and working as well, uh, because they're attracted to the modernity. They're attracted to the, you know, the mix of things. What nowadays might often get dismissed as cultural <laughs> appropriation, but everybody's appropriating from everybody else and creating this incredible high pie culture. Which, of course, that term was created by um, Beijing. Uh, more traditional intellectuals as a dismissive term, but came to be something that Shanghai embraced wholeheartedly. Hmm. But still, I, I imagine you're, you're going to encounter a little bit of criticism about the book, maybe suggesting that uh, you know, for all of its focus on immorality and the vice and the casual cruelty and the decadence, it's still you still romanticize the period and you pay little attention. Also, maybe they might say to the world outside of the international settlement, the French concession and the Badlands, uh, and and maybe indulge in um, a bit of expatriate fantasy in which you know, readers might imagine themselves you know, living in this same kind of a hedonistic, very separate bubble like they do now. <laughs> what, do you, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, by the time we're talking about 38, 39, 40, it, it, it's really not... Um, if, if it's a hedonistic bubble, it's because that's how people are trying to survive. Lots of people, of course, who may have just been there for the, for money reasons, American businessmen, British businessmen and so on, have left. They've got on evacuation ships and gone. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the reason why Shanghai has this still incredible life going on is two things. One is once Europe goes to war in 1939 – the UK particularly, of course, needs its people in Shanghai to keep sending money and uh, resources from China that they're no longer able to get in other ways. So, so that's very important uh, for, for, for Britain to survive and, 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 fight, and fight the war. Um, and it's and, and true for France, of course, up until the, the fall of France in, in right. mid-1940. So, so that's happening. But the other thing is, the Chinese that are in the city, however awful things are, and believe me, in those years from 1937 to 1941, we're talking about over 100,000 bodies a year being picked up off the street. Oh, Not God. just Chinese, but mo- mostly babies, unwanted babies and old people who just die. But also, you know, white Russians who just die. And the suicide rate among foreigners and Chinese is off the scale. Because if you're in Shanghai, in what the Chinese called Gudao, or the, the solitary or lonely island at this period, if you're in, you have a certain level of safety, but things are tough. You're certainly not going to leave and go to Japanese-occupied China. And for all of those people, like my cast of characters, those Russians, for instance, they have no passport. They can't go anywhere. The Jews that are arriving are escaping from somewhere, not trying to get somewhere. Jack Riley can't leave and his type can't leave because they're wanted criminals back in their own countries. Joe Farron, by 1938, can't leave because he's an Austrian Jew. The the Nazis are in control of his consulate and they're not Mm. renewing passports for Jews. So in a sense, it, it becomes this solitary island almost like a prison so it's not a bubble in the sense that these people are there but at any moment they could just jump on a british airways flight out of there or get you know delta back to wherever they come from they really have nowhere else to go that's a very good point very good point paul kaiser and i are both partisans of what you've called the dusty mongol camp 
uh, in the north, Beijing, of course. Yes, I've heard um, of it. And there are definitely many long-term foreigners in Beijing who are deeply invested in understanding the history of that city. Um, and of course, you've made your contribution to that with your uh, previous book. Um, there is also a real co community of contemporary Shanghailanders, the people who've been in Shanghai since the 80s or 90s or even earlier, uh, and especially those uh, who take a, a keen interest in pre-communist Shanghai. Can you talk a little bit about the, the contemporary Shanghai, Shanghai landers and how they differ from their Beijing uh, counterparts and perhaps the similarities <laughs> with the uh, expatriates of uh, the 30s? Of your, yeah. Mm. Well, I, I think there was, always a, there was always a difference. Shanghai was, you know, Arthur Ransom, the, the, the writer and journalist, created this idea of the Shanghai mind, that it, it was a purely capitalistic, purely money-driven mindset. That was certainly true in the 1930s. You know, part of the reason that we have these giant casinos and sexy chorus lines and everything is that the municipal council couldn't really care about stuff like that. Didn't care what people did. Prostitution, it wasn't even that bothered about drugs and things. That it didn't see as part of its remit. It was all about business. And that, of course, is still uh, largely a factor in uh, Shanghai. And I, I don't know if we can really talk about the Shanghai DNA, but certainly it was one of the reasons why Deng Xiaoping left Shanghai really till the last big city in China to open up. I mean, it's, you know, it was it was the mid-90s, moving into the later 90s before Shanghai was really, you know, they opened the cage and let Shanghai burst, burst out. And it was almost as if they sort of remembered immediately how they used to do things. Um, it helped, of course, that half of wealthy Sh Chinese Shanghai had just gone down the road to Hong Kong and taken over Hong Kong, basically. So they came back very quickly. So, so that was handy. Um, and of course, Shanghai's un the reason Shanghai exists as a existed as a treaty port and still thrives is just geography. It's the head of the Yangtze. Being at the head of the Yangtze is as important now as it was, you know, in the 1840s when, when the British decided that this would be the, the, the preeminent treaty port. That's all about trade. And, and you know, you can't, you can't get away, away from that. It's a very important um, location. As to today's, I mean, um, I think one of the things that unites a lot of the people that, that do uh, love Shanghai is that on a global scale, Shanghai is an incredible repository of various architectural forms. Hmm. And one of the things that people like Tess Johnston, Patrick Cranley, Tina Kanatagaratanam, I mean, these people that have been involved for a long time in talking about built heritage in Shanghai is also a thing that I get on about in Beijing as well, where, of course, we're talking about the hutong. So if we talk about the hutong in Beijing and we talk about the the the, the Lilong and the Shikuman housing, as well as the Art Deco in, in Shanghai, there's something that's very important about it that makes it globally important, which is... When you when you destroy the last hutong, that's it, right? Um, there is there aren't hutongs anywhere else for you to go to. And when you destroy the last shikuman in Shanghai, that's it. It's gone. You could knock down an Art Deco building in Shanghai; it would be a tragedy. But you can find one in Brussels or South Beach, Miami, or right. London, or somewhere else. But when the last hutong goes, that's extinction of a species of architecture. And when the last shikuman goes. That's extinction. And to me, as a lover of built heritage and architecture, that's like, you know, if you're knocking it down, that's like slitting the throat of the last panda, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, God. Placed rather dramatically. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, that is a, a great metaphor, Paul. Uh, I, I, let's uh, get it translated into Chinese and circulated amongst the urban planning departments of <laughs> China's cities. 
when you knock down or gentrify beyond control by bricking up and so on, the last hutong in Beijing, you have eradicated for any of our children or grandchildren an entire important architectural right. form. Well, I'm... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure bricking thing, up is the is the right. Thing. I mean, bricking up in some sense is restoring it to what it was before the rampant sort of mom and pop little shop capitalism of the '90s. Uh, so, oh come maybe, on, Kaiser, you know what's going to happen with the hutongs. The bricking up is just the start of the destruction. <laughs> you can't pretend anything else. I'm not not that pessimistic. And also, you know, hutongs were always vibrant business environments i mean i admit these sticking these plastic things on is not a good idea but people were always running small stores and there were always food streets you think of sujo or the old suchao hutong uh, you know in sure, in sure. in the old tata city that is still a food street and was always a food street when you walk down there and you smell them making jiang bing if they're still allowed to do that on the street there you're smelling the same smell that you know our ancestors <laughs> smell smelt foreign or chinese as they walk down that that hutong it's it, that that that's very very important and there's a reason why shikuman architecture in shanghai exists because it, that architectural form was created with those very narrow uh, alleyways between houses to cram as much housing as possible into the settlement boundaries to allow for the num the influx of largely chinese uh people right. into the city around the time of the Taiping Rebellion, you know, where people flooded into Shanghai that was, of course, protected by foreign troops and volunteer troops. So there's very specific reasons why that architecture exists. And hutongs, of course, are a great symbol of, of that city's, you know, Mongolian Yuan dynasty history. Right? So, and they don't exist anywhere else. So it's absolutely vital, in my opinion, that, that, that we keep banging on about it. So, Paul, um, this is a good point to ask, I think. You've been talking about the built heritage of both Shanghai and Beijing. And uh, City of Devils and your uh, previous book, uh, Midnight in Peking, of course, both focus on things that happened in the 1930s in those cities. Do you think that the, the Beijing of today and the Shanghai of today, do you think that there is actually a significant sort of cultural vestige? Or do you think the, the cultures of Beijing and Shanghai today are still shaped by what went mm. on in the decade that you wrote about? Yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that. I mean, I think that there was... Of, you know, there's always been a point to Shanghai and there's always been a point to Beijing. And Beijing was always, you know, was often a political capital and, and, and Shanghai never was. I mean, the closest it got was up the road at, at Nanjing from, from 1927 through to, to when the government moved to Chongqing during the war. Um, so it, it never had that necessarily national perspective on things. Shanghai was always about Shanghai. As I say, Arthur Ransom's the Shanghai mind. It didn't really think about anything else. If it thought about the interior of China, you know, the 400 million black ants, as, as they used to call the rest of the, Shanghai used to call the rest of the country, they thought about it as a market or they thought about it as a source of something that they wanted. Um, whether that be labor, goods, uh, or products, or, or something to sell to. So there's always been that difference. I think also you have to say that, of course, Beijing, um, although it's more difficult to divine it now, was always a center of uh, sc scholarly um, study. Shanghai had its universities, but really uh, Beijing was a center of traditional scholarly work. Uh, of the traditional arts, it's where the more traditional painters and the more traditional mm. writers 
playwrights, opera stars and so on lived. Whereas Shanghai was the modern, you know, it was the vernacular writers. It was the ones that wanted to write in a modernist style. It was cinema. It was that kind, it was typography and so on. Um, and I think that's true. Uh, Beijing, of course, has always as well been a religious center. It is effectively the Rome of China. It's, it's, it's where uh, religions are. And Shanghai has yeah, never that's had, true. Um, hadn't thought of uh, that. any particular religious significance in, um, in, in China. <clears throat> it has some temples and, and so on, but it, it doesn't have major centers for, for you know, Confucianism, Taoism, uh, Taoism, um, Islam, and, and it doesn't have uh, as many cathedrals as, as Beijing either. So, um, you know, Beijing is that kind of center. I always think of Harold Acton's book, Peonies and Ponies, if you've ever read it, which was written in 1941, but is about 1933. And he talks about the foreigners there. And he has the foreigners who are there in order to um, just enjoy themselves on a good exchange rate and go to parties. But he also has the foreigners there who like to wear Chinese gowns, who spend every night at the opera, who only ever eat Chinese food, who spend all day studying the Chinese language, who don't want to speak. Yeah, Same exactly. people we, we have now, actually, um, in, in, and, uh, all over China. And I... And I I think it's fair to say fair, that Beijing yeah, has always fair. had many yeah, more of those. I, I, I recognize China. those archetypes very, very much. Uh, you mentioned that, of course, Beijing is this center of scholarship. I think anyone with a kind of scholarly bent is going to be very curious about how you researched this book, um, the materials that you worked from, the archives that you were able to access, uh, the interviews that you conducted with people who you know might still have been living in Shanghai in the 30s uh, and so forth. I think they'd also be interested in knowing how... I think they'd also be interested in, in knowing how much you, you had to fill in with either you know interpolation or extrapolation based on your sense of the events, your imagination um, of the times, the personalities, um, the constructed dialogues, uh, which I think are, are seamless and, and done so well, uh, where you, I think, like, like many good books of this sort, you stop even wondering, you stop, stop even sort of questioning and just sort of allow yourself to be drawn in. Uh, how how so talk about it how how what the materials that you worked from and how much of it you did sort of imagine into it well you know all, all of my work now and and for you know since i've been able even when i wasn't writing full time all, all of my work has always been about foreigners the foreign uh, experience in, in in china in the first half of the 20th century so i've read an awful lot about it by now um uh, so um i i you know, it's all I do is, is is really sort of think about that and read about that and try to contact people about that and pick up every little detail that I can. Um, it also helps that um, where I first came across this story was from reading the, the English language China Coast newspapers, which, you know, the North China Daily News, the Chinese press, China press, the British and American run newspapers. There are also German and French ones and Russian ones, if you have the linguistic skills to read those. Um they're very, very good. Shanghai was a great tabloid market, you won't be surprised to hear. So there were always, um, every crime was, was recorded in detail. Every rigged, um, <laughs> every rigged boxing match and fixed beauty contest was, was, was covered in detail. Scandal after scandal after scandal. Um, Shanghai lapped it all up. And Shanghai loved celebrity. So it wrote about everybody, not just 
actors and actresses, but writers and gangsters and beauty queens and the, the most wonderful taxi dancers. There are magazines devoted just to the best taxi dancers at the ballrooms around the city. Of course. What, what is a taxi dancer? Uh, I came across that phrase a few times. It wasn't in your glossary. Well, yeah, no, a taxi dancer, well, they existed in America and Europe as well. Uh, a taxi dancer is simply a woman, although it can be a man as well, who will who you can dance with. When you go to a ballroom, uh, like like the oh, Paramount see, Ballroom see, 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 in right, right. Uh, Shanghai, you would buy a, a list of tickets, uh, a strip of tickets. And when you dance with the girl, you give her a ticket. And at the end of the night, she cashes that ticket in. And that's how she makes her money. But they would, I see. My dance card is full. Yeah, 10 cents a dance, right? But they would, they would kind of... There were people you could dance with for 10 cents. But if you wanted to dance with one of the women who were featured in the magazines, the great Chinese or Russian beauties of Shanghai, you paid a lot more than 10 cents a dance for them. So it was all business, of course. Still Shanghai at heart. So... Um, there's, there's a lot of that to read and absorb. Um, there are also the, the more formal documents. America, as you know, there was a very odd uh, extraterritorial legal system there. So are the, there are the records of the British court, the American courts, and all the other courts that you can read. There are the diplomatic records. Of course, everyone had consulates in Shanghai. There are mm-hmm. all the records of the Shanghai Municipal Police, all their tip sheets, all of their investigations, all of their suspicions are all kept and you can wade your way through those. And that's got to be one of the most fascinating couple of weeks you can spend wading through the Shanghai Municipal Police archives. If you want to pl- oh, plumb wow. the depths of uh, human sordidness, it's an absolute place to go. <laughs> oh if you want to know how political it was in terms of, you know, how much Chiang Kai-shek's agents and Dai Li's agents were coming into Shanghai at that period and how much, how many people, for instance, including the right, the great writer, Mu Ying, were being assassinated, how many people, um, Wang Jingwei, the puppet leader, was assassinating in return, what the Soviet Union was up to, what everyone else was up to, and criminal gangs. You can read everything from special branch, you know, police intelligence and British intelligence that was there at the time. So there are, there's the municipal council archives. There are all sorts of records, um, as well as some memoirs. And we're very lucky at the moment. It's a golden time for me that, you know, this whole kind of who do you think you are sort of uh, um, fad at the moment means that all sorts of people are writing their memoirs. Now, so many people, particularly in, in Britain, America and Australia, have roots, you know, foreigners have roots that go back to Shanghai. That, you know, Sure, yeah, I've met many. Right, all yeah. of these Russians, all of these Jewish refugees all have uh, grandchildren uh, working now in San Francisco or Sydney or London. And they're all producing their history. And many of them do get in touch with me you know, street names that they want to work out, uh, offices that they want to work out. And I'm quite willing to do that in exchange for anecdotes and photographs. So so there's a lot of stuff still coming out of shoeboxes in attics as well, which is just vital. And I think, to go back to it, there is also a great interest now from Chinese people. You know, it's not always easy to find a third or even a fourth generation Shanghainese. They, they tend to come from somewhere else, right? It's, it's so, right, so, right. Um, but if you, but those that are do have records and I do get contacted by a lot of Shanghainese people who are interested as well, who say, my father worked in this foreign company, you know, he worked for Jardines or he worked for the newspapers or he was a driver for so-and-so. And so we're getting all of that uh, information now as they, as they take an interest in, in coming from Shanghai. And as of course, it's not particularly politically dangerous to, to express your interest in that. Um, and the biggest source at the moment that's happening is that the Russians themselves have taken an interest 
in the Russian emigres, which they never did during the Soviet Union period, of course, when they were just traitors. Right. And so there are all these archives opening now, and there are Russian language scholars of Shanghai like Katya Knyazeva and other people that you can find online who are mining the Russian archives and coming up with the most extraordinary stuff that no one's ever seen before. So, so in oh, my wow. book, City of Devils, as I did in Midnight Peking, I always try never to use a photograph that's been used in another book. Because I think, you know, you get those China books and they're the same old photographs. I'm always trying to sure. find new photographs and specifically ones that are, that are given to me. So there's a lot of photographs of chorus lines at the Paramount Ballroom, which is still there, of course. Mm, up yeah, there. they're great. Nanjing those Shui. photos are amazing. Well, those were given to me after midnight in Peking when a lady in San Francisco who was 102 years old phoned me and said, my kids don't care, my grandchildren don't care, but you might. I was a chorus, I was a chorus line dancer in Shanghai. Would you like the photos? And I said, yes, please, I would. Oh my she God. sent me all those photographs. I wrote and said, you can use them. If you can do anything with them, please do, because you know none of my family are interested. And I um, emailed her back and said, thank you so much. I'm going to use them. And unfortunately, she'd passed away in the, in the week, literally the week between her sending me the photos and coming back. So... Oh, no. um, it's you know that kind of thing still occasionally wow. happens, and um, as I say, there's a lot more coming out of Russia now and, and out of and out of other countries and, and out of China itself that people have had stashed away. So, so there's still a lot to be learned. There's a lot of lives to be recovered, and there's all sorts of things uh, um, still coming to light. And we just I just try and hoover it all up, and from that create as complete a world of, of Shanghai in that period as, as we possibly can. I hope there are many more books then. <laughs> Paul, you, you, you know, began talking about the, the local English language publications. And one of the more odious characters in the book is the American founder of the gossip rag called The Shopping News. Um, I was an editor and publisher of many expat magazines over the years, and I, I guess I know the type. Um, <laughs> can you tell us about uh, Don Chisholm, uh, his newspaper, and about his disgraceful broadcasts in support of fascism? Oh, yeah. Well, Don Chisholm was one of those kind of classic characters that, that I sort of look for, um, who uh, ended up in prison in America for a short time for sort of cashing bad checks and tricking people out of money. He was a fraudster. And he made it over to Shanghai and he told everyone, you know, a completely different story that he was a media baron. And he set up this news newspaper called The Shopping News, which was ostensibly full of advertising for various shops that foreign, it was in English, that various foreigners went to. You should always remember, you know, that the number of Chinese people in Shanghai who could, who could read English and had studied abroad and everything, particularly those with money, was, was quite enormous at the time. So English was the sort of lingua franca mm. of, of anyone with money in the city. And... Um, he ran advertising and particularly shops did discount, you know, coupons, right? It was like a very early Groupon kind of thing, if anyone remembers Groupon. <laughs> and um, it kind of went that way. Um, but what he decided to do was take it one step further. And I think this is always that moment when you're researching a story in Shanghai where you go, right, this is now a Shanghai story. So you set up a magazine, you sell advertising, you do coupons, and then you lay up a version of the magazine that has all the gossip in it that says, you know, Jeremy Goldcorn was seen out on the town this week at Sir Victor Sassoon's Cafe Hotel drinking with his rather beautiful Russian secretary. Or maybe she's not his secretary. Either way, she was sitting on his lap. And he would send you, he would send you <laughs> this, uh, this layup of the newspaper and say to you, um, we're thinking of running this next week. Do you have any comment? 
Um, and there would also be a little slip at the end where you could make a donation to fund the, uh, <laughs> to continue funding the newspaper. Check made out to Mr. D. Chisholm of, you know, whatever. So it was a, it was a scandal rag and a, and a bribery, a blackmail rag as well. But it had some great stories in it and that, that they reflect other sides of Shanghai, like everyone getting angry about the, the gas rates going up or the telephone charges going up. So I've sort of included them because I think they're quite fun. Um, he then decided that he, he that the future was the Nazis, right? So he decided to become this broadcaster. A kind of he became Shanghai's Lord Hoho, if you know who I yeah, mean. You know yeah. the British guy that used to broadcast on on Nazi radio, and he broadcast on Nazi-funded radio in Shanghai, saying, you know. You know, London's going to be destroyed by Japanese bombs. The French are weak and have, and, and have caved in. You know, Europe is finished uh, and it will rise up under the Nazis. And he would go on about um, Edward Fyodorovich Roosevelt, you know, the, the secret <laughs> Jewish financier that runs America. All of this Nazi propaganda stuff. And he'd be blasting it all over um all over uh, Shanghai and his, his, his sort of second in command his buddy the, the radio buddy was a fascinating guy a Chinese American called Herbert Erasmus Moy who was a graduate of Columbia here in New York who had gone out to Shanghai and was an even more diehard Nazi I've never been able to quite realize understand what he liked about the Nazis diehard Nazi this is not people sporting the Japanese militarism this is real they, they think the Gestapo are the future wow. and they would broadcast this stuff anyway um, at the end of the war, uh, Don Chisholm was eventually arrested by the Americans when they got there and put in prison as a A1, category A1 traitor. And Herbert Erasmus Moy, on the day that the news reached Shanghai that Hitler had uh, committed suicide in his bunker in Berlin, he threw himself out the fourth floor window of the radio studio and committed That's suicide. dedication. My God. Yeah. But there, there, there were more as well. There, there were any number of Americans, a few British and some others, who worked for the Japanese and the Germans throughout uh, the, the, the Japanese occupation of Shanghai. It's, it, that's a very little understood uh, world of collaboration there, I think. Jeremy, let's hit up Putin to do a, a Chisholm and Moy routine. You be Chisholm, I'll be Roy, and then uh, we'll light, light, start some pro-Putin propaganda with the support of the American president, of course. Oh, yeah. my God. Uh, those shopping news columns were just amazing and just so utterly shameless. Uh, but- yeah, well, so I got the, I got those columns from the... Sh- I mean, no, no copies of that mag- newspaper exist as far as I know, but clippings from it that were thought to be either incendiary to sort of, to sort of public calm or potentially bribery were clipped and glued onto pieces of paper and put in the Shanghai Municipal Police Archives. Oh, thank God. You know, and you can, go to the, you can go to the National Archives in Washington or you can go to Oregon State University or the UK Archives and you can see those there. And they've put them there with a note next to it saying, you know, here's Chisholm again stirring up trouble or here he is again blackmailing so-and-so. Well, and sort of, they very clearly they were, were, were blackmail. He, he tends to go after utility companies, I see. I mean, in particular, that was really funny. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're good comic relief. But there, there's other interstitial material that you included, uh, these little one-page accounts of rumors and urban legends and superstitions and, and, and popular takes on the news of the day uh, that all end with the sentence, this the people believed. Uh, what, what were those? Uh, can you tell us where those came from and, and why you included them? I mean, they were very, they're really great. I think they added a ton of color. But were those you or were they somebody else or...? 
No, no, I mean, none, none of those are made up. They're all things that came out of uh, research. And when, when I did Midnight in Peking, one of the things that I wanted to include in the book was this rumor that went around Peking at the time during the investigation that the murder of Pamela Werner was due to fox spirits. Either a fox spirit killed her or um, she was herself a fox spirit and, and someone murdered her because of that. Now, of course, the police never took that seriously and it wasn't really reported in the newspapers, but it, it was something that people believed, you know, the superstition um, and, and the beliefs and the rumours that go around things are something that um, we lose because they're not in the official record. Right. So, so trying to find out what were the official, what what were the rumors at the time are very interesting. So, some of the ones I have are, are really um, allegories in a sense. They are things like um, there were rumors running around, of course, that the Japanese were going to drop, um, you know, uh, infested uh, or you know, like bubonic uh, fleas all over Shanghai, and that everyone would die. And there was a run on vinegar because they believed if you burnt vinegar, it would protect you. Right. Like in SARS. So th- right. Exactly. Exactly. You got it. You've got it. So this is fascinating to me because, of course, these rumors were running around and we do know the Japanese were developing chemical weapons. Yeah, Unit right? 731. They were, yeah. they were considering doing it, but people didn't know that for sure at the time. It was rumor. And then, of course, this thing about if you burn vinegar and, of course, what happens? All the vinegar sells out. Any vinegar that criminal gangs end up holding the vinegar and putting the price high and everyone starts selling fake vinegar. Right? <laughs> exactly the same. Exactly then it the becomes same a Shanghai you story, through, right? <laughs> you, you walk through Shanghai during SARS and the whole place stunk of vinegar, right? And if you'd have walked through parts of uh, Shanghai in 1939, it would have stunk of vinegar. But th- these were rumors. Other ones were that, you know, young Shanghai women were being taken to houses where the Japanese were stealing their souls and turning them into ghosts that eventually just died. And of course, this was a way of early on of understanding comfort women, the mm, comfort women right. houses in Shanghai, right? And it was a way of allegorizing it. And similarly, when they talk about alligators coming up the Wangpu River for the first time in a century and scratching at it, and they say these, these, these alligators can speak Japanese and blah, blah, blah. So these were ways rumors that came to the city ways that people understood things and i think you know it we it, they're very difficult to recover those things but they're really crucial really crucial absolutely paul i know for midnight in peking uh your last book um you've uh, edited or compiled a walking tour uh in beijing which uh, i think you've led yourself and and people can do through some travel agencies that uh, show people who've read the book some of the sites that feature in the book, and many of them are, are still standing, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, how about in Shanghai? Do some of the the uh, rather spectacular-sounding buildings that feature in City of Devils, are they still around, and can you go and visit them? Well, that Midnight in Peking walking tour is, is kind of incredible. It goes on the last Saturday of every month and it, it always seems to be booked out it, it, it's it's crazy and i now get contacted by um uh, all of these academics that are working on dark tourism you know which is like this idea that you go somewhere and do a murder walk like sort of jack the ripple walks oh, in London or something so it's a kind of an odd thing i'm not sure if i'm that happy about it but it, it seems to it, it certainly keeps the book moving along um shanghai is very different most of the places that were built these enormous casinos that were built after the japanese occupation and when this area to the west of shanghai became the badlands it became known as the badlands were just wooden shacks and they just simply um 
haven't uh, survived. Later in the war, after the Japanese occupation, many of them were converted into um, into uh, barracks for the Japanese troops, and they were actually bombed and destroyed um, either by Free China guerrillas who came into the city and blew them up, or later on by American. Uh, United States Air Force bombers when they when they came over the city in 1945. So there really isn't very much left. I mean, of course, you can walk through the Shikuman and you can still walk along the the Bund, of course, into places like Broadway mansions. Um, unfortunately, you can't go and stay in the um, Astor House Hotel anymore. Mm. It's closed now, sadly. Um, great World is still there. That. that features in the book. The Great The Great World is still there, and it's been tarted up and uh, reopened. And certainly on the outside, um, looks very uh, uh, looks great. Um, so, of course, uh, things still keep coming down. So the Laoshaman district is being destroyed at a rate of knots. If you don't go there in the next month or two, you'll never see that area. What, what is um, where the, the Badlands were now? What, what, what roads are those? Uh, the Great Western so, so, Road is, so, is what route? Yeah, the Great Western Road is Yanan Shilu. You're also looking at the roads that form around there that were um, uh, Panyulu, uh, Xinhualu, um, and, and, and in that, and Huashanlu. Oh, okay, so down towards, oh, I, know, I know that area. Down towards Sujiahui. So where the uh, Radisson Shinguo Hotel okay. is now, okay. cross over the road from there around Fanyulu. So it was a leafy suburb. It, it's right near where J.G. Ballard was born. And in fact, J.G. Ballard in his memoirs talks about being a young boy just after the war started and walking, de- daring himself to walk through a deserted casino. And it was the... Um, Del Monte, which features in the book a lot. J.G. Ballard, was of course, done from out Empire of the Sun, the Spielberg movie. From Empire of the right. Sun. And was done out in the style of uh, uh, of the Gardens of Versailles. And he remembers walking through this kind of smashed terrain of roulette wheels and Versailles statuary. And um, just being sort of finding that one of those kind of influential, very J.G. Ballardian uh, moments. Um, so it was a very nice area that under the Japanese, because it was just beyond the police borders of the settlement, became the Badlands. But actually now it's a, a rather a nice area again. And the Columbia Country Club, which was a, a, a quite luxurious country club with an outdoor swimming pool, mostly uh, uh, catering to a expatriate Americans was for all of my time in Shanghai um, a swimming pool that was filled full of green slime and was a kind of Shanghai chemicals number seven or something (laughs) but it's now been taken over and it's been restored and is back to being a kind of um, well it's not a club but but sort of a place you can go and a cafe and and in that very sort of Chinese way they've they've restored the swimming pool but you're not allowed to swim in it. (laughs) Marvelous marvelous. Uh, Paul, I trust that you are not done serving up these delectable little stories from the 1930s. Uh, uh, there's going to be more, hopefully, on the way. Um, can you tell us what you're cooking up? Any new literary Yeah, I, well, I, I want to move on, and I, I, I very much have wanted to look at Shanghai in that area that not doesn't get talked about so much, which is where it becomes very gritty and, and very tough, which is after the war. So the, the city is liberated in August 1945, by the Americans, really. And then it is effectively, for a few years, run by the Americans, um, largely because they're the only ones who can get the power stations working and bringing enough food and medicine and so on to keep it going. Um, And I really want to look at that world from about 1947 and 1948, um, because it's just fascinating. It's completely a black market. 
the, uh, you've got all of these Russians and all of these Jewish refugees are desperately trying to find their displaced persons and they're desperately, the new United Nations is trying to find uh, passports for them. If you had any sort of criminal record, you went to the back of the list. The communists, of course, are fighting the nationalists all around the city and, are get, and the communists are getting closer and closer. The nationalists are all starting to uh, panic and jump on boats to Taiwan. Um, and I do have a number of murders uh, and and um, uh, various criminal things that went on that, I, that were reported at the time, but I don't think linked together at the time. So I want to go back and look at those and try and solve those, but create this kind of, you know, there's no power for the neon lights anymore. The big nightclubs are shut down. This is a seedy, uh, rundown city on its uppers. And again, just as with um, uh, Midnight Peking and City of Devils, we hurtle towards that kind of Japanese occupation of 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 China and, and the terror of World War II. In this one, I want to do that last moment as we hurtle towards sort of 1949 and that mad scramble. But by many Chinese, of course, I mentioned earlier, going down to Hong Kong and, and throughout Southeast Asia and so on, that, you know, you need to get out of town now. So, um, and I think that's a fascinating period. All, all of this after you spent a couple of years as a showrunner for a Netflix uh, yes, let's adaptation hope so. I mean, I, the, of the, the pitch Devils, was always uh, Boardwalk Empire Far East, and it, and it certainly um, did has done very very well. So there's a there's an awful lot of paperwork sitting on my agent's table for her to uh, to go through. But um, well, well, bits and pieces are signed. I mean, I can absolutely tell you, I I try now not to get involved in it because it's so time consuming and there's so much BS talked in that business (laughs) that uh, really um, it's better to just go back into the basement of the library and get on with the next book. And then hopefully someone will phone you up and say, oh, there's some money and a ticket to Los Angeles for you. But uh, if you wait around, if you held your breath for it, you would you would um, you would drown a long time ago. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm still holding out for a role in one of your your, your films. I, if they do City of Devils, I'm not sure who I could play, but I think definitely. Yeah, yeah, that, that's still Inspector on the table. Han, there, they, we have a great script, and we have um, Sir Patrick Stewart attached to it, and it's out with all of the. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's been out there with uh, you know oh all gosh. of these Amazons and Netflix and. Uh, different platforms and and big broadcasters for some time. But, you know, the good news is, the good news is everyone wants to do that kind of period in China. It's really catnip for viewers. You know, it's such a honeypot of uh, great stories and everybody loves that period. Um, And I think, uh, and there's a great actor attached to it and a good script, but, you know, the downside to it is it's super expensive to do. And, um, but we're supposed to be going through this golden age of television drama at the moment. Mm, so, yeah, yeah. So who knows? I can tell you that the thing about City of Devils is that all of these Netflix and people, they're trying to sell into every different territories and they've got all sorts of scripts that they tell me are being created that try to sort of shoehorn in different characters from different countries to sort of appeal in those markets. But City of Devils, just without thinking about it, has people from everywhere, right? Because Shanghai had people from everywhere. So you, you don't need to make yeah. anyone up. You don't need the to shoehorn anyone yeah, in. I mean, we've got Buck Clayton yeah. and his Harlem Gentlemen, who were a fantastic African-American band that were Madam Chiang Kai-shek. He taught Madam Chiang Kai-shek to tap dance. He they got into a big with, fist fight Jack, one night. Jack Riley. Uh, Jack with, Riley with got into Joe a massive his fist his fight. With, with Jack but you've got, um, you know, I've, we've got the Corsican Mafia uh, running opium out in the original French Connection, which started in the 1920s out of Shanghai and, and Indochina. So there's, there's people from just about everywhere you can think of. 
you've got Chinese from everywhere in Shanghai. As I said, you know, from from Guangzhou to to uh, you know the far northeast, you've got people from everywhere that have come to Shanghai to try their luck, and Koreans that have come up with the Japanese army, and of course the Japanese, the yakuza are arriving in Shanghai, thinking there must be something for them there, right? I mean. You've got people from everywhere. As you mentioned, you've got orchestras full of guys from Manila. You've got um, uh, uh, businessmen coming up from uh, from Malaya, from uh, from Singapore, from all of these places. There's an Indian community. Of course, the famous Sikh uh, police officers in uh, Shanghai, you know, the fearsome turbaned uh, police officers that, that, that didn't used to get on very well with the local Chinese population. So it is, it, it is at that time, I think of it's course, fair to yeah. say, the most cosmopolitan place in the world. Well, I'm really looking forward to to the show, but I cannot recommend the book more highly. And I want to congratulate you on that. It's riveting. It's a rollicking good time. Again, for listeners, the book is called City of Devils, The Two Men Who Ruled the Underworld of Old Shanghai. And the author, Paul French, is now on book tour, so make sure to catch him up. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, Let's move on to recommendations. But before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletters or, better still, become an Access member and enjoy premium content, ad-free podcasts, discounts or free admission to our events, and, and more. If you like what we're doing with the Seneca Podcast or with any of our other shows, please leave us a positive review on the iTunes store. It really does help other people to discover our podcast. Uh, now, on to recommendations. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you start off in Fiji? Uh, what do you have for us? So my recommendation, yes. Uh, I haven't really been a big fan of the Scandinavian crime novel wave of the last while, but I found one that I really like named uh, Joe Nesbo. He's Norwegian, uh, and the novels are set in Norway. The character in one of the ongoing series, his name is Harry Hole, who, you know, of course, is a kind of hard-boiled, alcoholic uh, guy. Uh, but not all of the, the books are this, uh, this character. The most recent one I'm just reading is called Macbeth and is set in the 1970s. Um, anyway, so it's, uh, you know, they're all in Norway. It's a Scandinavian kind of crime fiction James Elroy on the back of the one I'm reading now says, I am the world's greatest living crime writer. Joe Nesbo is a man who is snapping at my heels like a rabid pit bull poised to take over my mantle when I dramatically predecease him. So <laughs> there we go. You know, I've, I've only really read just, you know, the, I can't even remember his name right now. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, the guy that everybody read, uh, the the girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh, yeah, right, the dragons, right. hornets, wasps, um, nests. So and th- those were one. those were interesting. Those were those were those were good, although weirdly detailed. You know, the, the author felt compelled to include a list of absolutely every item that he bought anytime he went shopping. It was it was weird. I anyway, <laughs> uh, not as good as City of Devils. Uh, Paul, what do you have for us? Well, I mean, I, I can't get the image of Gogan Goldcorn down there in the South Seas reading about snowy Norway. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I recommend a crime writer that I think some of your, your listeners might find very interesting. Uh, a British writer actually called Tom Callahan, and he has written a series of there's three with a fourth one coming out, um, set in Bishkek. Oh wow! Um, yeah, yeah and curious. And it's yeah. with 
in, in Kyrgyzstan and it's the Bishkek Murder Squad series. It starts with a book called A Winter Killing and then I think the next one's called A Spring Something and A Summer Summer Revenge, something like that. They're really good. The guy lived in, uh, in Bishkek for a long time and he takes you around the region. He goes over into Uzbekistan and he goes into Xinjiang a couple of times as well. And um, it, they're, they're very authentic. They're, they're very dark. They're very post-Soviet. Wow. Um, they're very Central Asia. And I think, you know, f- I, I'm going to give them as a bit of an antidote to all this Belt and Road nonsense. Oh. Um, it, it's another way of looking at Central Asia. And I would also recommend, by the way, uh, as we're talking about crime, if you like a good revenge story, um, Jung Won's new movie, uh, Hidden Man, I think is great fun. And the CGI recreation of which I of 1930s Beijing and the hutongs and the old railway station and the cars and the trolley buses is absolutely state of the art. It's never been done as well as this. Wow, I, how have I not seen this yet? Hidden Man. Okay, I will definitely. I, I love Jiang Wei. Yeah. I mean, well, it, it just it just opened at the weekend, and that sort of that that other movie, the bomb. Asura, yeah. Uh, yeah, only made six million. Jung Wung cleared forty six point five million dollars on his first weekend with this movie. So that might show you that uh, you know Old Peking is still pretty popular with Outstanding. audiences. Outstanding. I, I I can't wait to see it. I'm going to recommend a book. Uh, it was from I think two thousand five. That's very relevant today. Still, it's called The Anatomy of Fascism by the scholar Robert Paxton. Uh, and it, it takes an in-depth look at, at the rise of, of Italian and German fascist regimes, uh, especially the context that made that rise possible, thus the, the relevance to today. It looks at fascism actually in action, not just you know what it said it was going to do, but what it actually did. Uh, and at the end, it kind of proposes a pretty sensible working definition of fascism. I haven't really seen good ones that you could use. Uh, anyway, I want to thank my office mate, Damian DeNoble, for turning me on to that book. Uh, check it out. It's quite good. Uh, Paul, once again, thank you so much, and big congratulations on this excellent, excellent book. Jeremy, I, I hope you're enjoying your holiday, and enjoy the rest of the holiday, too. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll uh, try to. I will talk to you pretty soon. We, we've got a really cool podcast that we're going to be recording next week. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by me. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Session Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, and the new women's podcast, New Voices, New Voices. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.